Welcome to The Problem, a Lockwood & Co. podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And today we are talking about part two of part two. The second half of part two. There you go. Chapters six through eight. What did we? I mean, we just chit-chatted so much ourselves that I feel like we don't have any opening chit-chat. <laughs> well, did you move into your new space? Like, are you still hanging blankets with empty bookcases? And- no, no, I'm in my new place. I did have a lot of difficulty. So last week I was I was in my new place, and but I couldn't find the pen that I usually take all my notes with, so I had to use a different pen, and I hated that. And then today I had found my normal pen that I take my notes with, and it just felt so nice. I felt like you were going to say your real pen. My real pen. (laughs) Yeah. No, no. I didn't like crack up my quill and my ink jars, although I have found those also. (laughs) Um, I've eaten for, it's like 10 a.m. here, and I've had so much chocolate because it's December and there's just chocolate everywhere. Nice. And I feel a little ill, but I'm putting more chocolate into my mouth right now. Good. Well, I'm drinking hot chocolate instead of tea because that's the season. Although in this section, they do drink some hot chocolate. So I feel like accidentally I have been authentic. Very on theme, yes. In Chapter 6, Lockwood & Co. report for duty at Kensal Green Cemetery and find the iron coffin of of Edmund Bickerstaff. Oh, sorry. (laughs) This is a typo on my part. I'm not good with names. See, and I take particular note of the Edmund thing because that's also a Narnia character like Lucy. Oh, yeah. And again, I wonder if that was subtly influencing his decision making here for names. It's also kind of like a oldie name, you know, like he's from a different time. An oldie name. An oldie name. You know, those names (laughs) like you tune into the oldie station and it's all Edmunds and... Eustaces and things like that. Of course. And that is what our chapter art is here at the beginning of chapter six, Edmund's uh, headstone, which does not look like a normal headstone or like a typical headstone. And they talk about that Mm -hmm. when they get there, that it's all messed up and poorly done. So the chapter starts off with them arriving at Kensal Green Cemetery. And Lucy sort of gives us this description of what the place used to be when... uh, when people had a gentler relationship with the deceased. And I just find this sort of description really interesting because she has no idea what people's relationships with cemeteries were without the violence of ghosts. It's almost like an archaeologist making assumptions about a culture that they don't know and they're just like looking at... Because I don't think I would not describe actual people's relationships with the deceased to be gentle. You know, I think cemeteries look really pretty as kind of a facade. But to somebody who has to fight dead people, I guess it would seem gentle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just found that really interesting. It is a little bit romantic. I think it's not quite right that people would just hang out in the cemetery and be like, oh, wow, and contemplate mortality and stuff. And be profound, like they just probably didn't go to the cemetery very much. When I was a kid, I used to hang out in cemeteries. I liked them a lot because they were empty and pretty. Mm. And I was allowed to go there and not like have an agenda. Like a lot of places when you're a kid, you go there and they're like, you're going to buy something. You're going to. Right. Yeah. So you could do you could do that. And I, I liked the quiet of cemeteries, but like I'm 
weird and I was even weirder when I was a kid. So like, I don't think that's normal. I think this is going to sound stupid, but I think it's normal for weird kids. Yeah, I used to go there to read because it was quiet. Uh, and people would leave you alone. If you're in a cemetery, people are like, oh, they're mourning. And they would be like, nah, I'm just not being harassed right now. Um, and I I didn't think of this when the, when the show was, you know, in this space and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I did think to look up Kensal Green is like a real place. This will be like for people who live in England or London, they'll be like, duh, of course it is. But to me, who knows nothing about England, I was like, wow. Fiction is real. Um, <laughs> I It's very pretty. I didn't look it up, but I also, I, I did have a moment of being like, I wonder if it is real or not, but I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of like, uh, you just do like a Google Im- image search. There's a lot of incredible monuments and uh, it's kind of like what they talk about how there was rich people who were buried there in the show. Yeah. Uh, and there's just all kinds of graves. And like when you look at how big it is compared to the real estate around it in London, it's a huge amount of space devoted to, you know, a graveyard. So it's like incredible in some ways. It has a really cool um, chapel in the center of it, too. It's so interesting, the cultural feelings about graveyards and cemeteries, because like I like um I I don't remember like I've never seen this one but I have seen cemeteries in Manhattan you know and that sort of thing and it's like that is prime real estate yeah, yeah. like people could make a lot of money off that but nobody touches it cuz it's a cemetery and it's just interesting the things that we will and won't disturb for money yeah but it's a real place uh and it's very pretty like she said but now it's enemy territory yeah, and she also has a line that says, we were not welcome there. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't think that's really that different. I think a lot of people feel now, unless you're actively at a funeral, you don't feel very welcome at a cemetery. Weird kids aside. <laughs> I think that's what was appealing about it to me, was that people are not welcome there. Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting what's the same and what is not the same. And also how she's like romanticized the lives of the people pre-problem. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think this is like a perception thing on her part yeah. that's not quite right. Like obviously it is more dangerous for her and for their the kids of their time. But I'm just saying like we all feel that like we don't quite belong here in a cemetery even now and i which i do think probably inspired parts of these books right yeah 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 these books are for the weird kids anyway so yeah exactly um and then we get a bit about the ghost cult mhm and it's so short and i don't remember it ever coming up again in this book and i just i'm like this is it i want more please tell me more what do these people like i want them to be a big plot point and they never are yeah I like this element of the world building. I find it very authentic. Yes. And it's like really easy to see this from having lived through the pandemic with COVID and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Denialism. It's interesting. It's really well observed on Strahd's part. And also just people who like, there's a lot of people out there who would do anything to talk to a loved one one last time. Right. Even if, even when they are, there's ample evidence around them that it would be dangerous 
and that it would not work out well for them, that they would not get what they want, they still would do it. Yeah. So, yeah, no, this makes total sense. And I, I wish we got more of it because it is really interesting and I want to know more about these people. It's interesting to you to like refer to them as cults. Yeah, because it, our modern appellation of cults is like a shorthand for brainwashed person because it's not particularly religious, even though it's like supernatural, I guess. But the supernatural in this world has like this entire scientific dimension to it. Like there's solid evidence that something happens after death. And so they're just like, it's not that bad based on nothing. Yep. I I wish we got more of them. I feel like they're introducing them here because, you know, we're we're about to start the mystery of this book and they're just there to be like another potential uh, suspect. Yeah, that's a good point. I think they also relate to Bickerstaff's psychology as we dig into like his past, like he would have been one of these people who's like, there's answers out there, you know, right. This is something we should look into. I genuinely don't remember like what was show and what was book about Bickerstaff other than rats were book and necrophilia was show (laughs) that I remember. (laughs) Um, But everything else, I it's all smooshed in my head. So it'll be interesting to see what's what. There is a a funny moment in that spot that we're talking about where they meet the cult. uh, And one of them has a sign that says, we welcome our friends from the other side. And Lucy says, personally, I'd like to welcome them with a magnesium flare. Yeah. Our fire-loving Lucy is ready to explode some stuff. Yeah, a little pyro. I love her. And that, that one is one of those ones that's highlighted by hundreds and hundreds of people. So they love it. Also, she has a ghost friend. You know, and it's not all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, and then we meet a little snot of a kid who I love. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> he's like, I'm not paid enough for this shit. Yeah. He's <laughs> he's like an old man who's over all of it, but he's like eight. Yeah, that's almost exactly like I highlighted here. It talks about this is a Night Watch kid who is basically controlling the gate. Um, so that civilians don't come in and out and like cause problems that everybody else is going to have to deal with. So they're like, we're agents. And he's like, he gives them a lot of guff because they don't have uniforms. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a lot of back and forth. And my notes about this is like, while this can come off like as bullying to some degree, like because of their differences in age, their like yeah. social economic status, all that stuff. It's also like a noir fiction dynamic between like independent detectives and private security who have like big chips on their shoulder because they're not official, you know, they, they don't have any real power on either side of the coin, but they get, get pushed around a lot because of that. So they're like, I don't surly uh, and don't like each other. So I love how just all of that is just folded together. So effortlessly here, Mm -hmm. this is just really well done. And, and, like, the Lockwood & Co. Uh, kids are kids, too. Like, they're older kids, obviously. But yeah. you can definitely see that they get their hackles up really easily in a similar way. Or, like, the kid doesn't get his hackles up. He's just a bit of a snot, like I said. But Yeah, he just doesn't give a shit. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, this is like an elementary kid, like, mouthing off to the middle schoolers. Yes. And they're like, we're middle schoolers. Like, the whole thing is dumb. 
Uh, but it's really good. Um, then they go in, and <laughs> I love this bit because Lockwood is all, everything should be fairly straightforward, blah, 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 blah. And Lucy and George are just like, mm, I don't think so because they, they feel the plot is starting. <laughs> so then they get into the crowd because there's a lot of people in the cemetery doing work and we start hearing all their complaints about this grave. And then we are introduced to the sensitives, my least favorite part in this whole book, mm. um, which, of course, Lucy describes them as uh, a posse of teenage girls whose shapelessly floaty dresses, black eyeliner, outsized bangles, and lank armpit length hair marked them out as sensitives because they all look exactly the same and they're all girls. You know, right. to do this job, they have a uniform. Uh, yeah. sensitives do psychic work, but they refuse to ever actually fight ghosts for reasons of pacifist principle. They're generally as drippy as a summer cold and as irritating as hives. We don't normally get along. <laughs> Understatement. Like, yeah. why are they all girls? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about, like, the gendered... Yeah. Yeah, economy of, of ghost hunting and whether it's something essential to the way the world operates or if it's culturally enforced it seems essential to me but it would it would be so interesting for there to be a quote-unquote sensitive boy or a girl who has sight i i just think this is stroud being a bad writer here like normally he's a good writer and i think this is bad writing mm -hmm. i don't the fact that there could be an in-world explanation doesn't even... I don't care. This is just shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he built it to yeah. be this way. I I don't... I'm, I'm, I hate it less in the show when they have George looking down on it because that feels more real. This is just Lucy hating on girls who are different than her. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be mad at them because of um, their gender or anything that's about like it almost feels like an activism type of like he's ideologically opposed to their stance on the problem he's like like you have the ability to do things but you won't do them yeah maybe this is wrong but the way that he will say it right to their face yeah. makes me feel a little bit better about it like when he yeah. says go write a poem about it like that's so good yeah um but this is I, I don't like it in the book at all. It... And then, like, Lucy goes on to talk more shit about women. Uh, <laughs> my personal impulse would have been to slap the girl soundly around the face and boot her moaning backside out into the night, which is why he's the leader and I'm not. I'm referring to Lockwood, obviously. Also why I have no female friends. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Calm down, Lucy. God. I feel like Stroud could have written this, like if he wanted Lucy to have this underlying dislike of other women, he could have written it so that it made sense and that it wasn't just like, I'm not like other girls. She, he could have had, because she has five older sisters or is she the fifth? No, she has six older sisters. She's the seventh. Yeah, yeah. she's the seventh. Yeah. And, and a mom who was probably not a great mom in the books. Obviously, she's definitely not a great mom in the show. We don't know too much about the books, though. So I, I think he could have put some of that in and it would have made sense and had her 
and and especially through meeting Flo and later Holly and having her come around on women and that sort of thing and made that like an overarching thing. But even if he intended it that way, it's so subtle in the books that it really just does come across as her hating women for no reason. Yeah, I don't get the sense that like her mom is especially femme in her, you know, presentation. And even if she was and like cared about those things, she probably didn't have the time once her husband is dead right, yeah. to like train her daughter to perform femininity, mm-hmm. you know, in an acceptable way. Right. So like, I'm sure that Lucy is insecure about this on like multiple levels. But yeah, I agree. There's no ironic presentation where like that's an element of her psychology about the way that she feels about women. Yeah, exactly. Like these are all things that we can suppose about Lucy, but none of it is for sure on the page. Yeah. And therefore it just feels like Stroud decided to make her not like other girls in quotations. My notes here around this, because I trusted you to handle everything we're talking about. Um, we're like around all of the hierarchies that we're getting here. Like there's a lot of effortless world building around the ghost fighting culture of like all these different things that are not agents. They're upset, but there's also like, because of the situation with Bickerstaff, but there's a lot of like underneath that, there's a lot of like social hierarchy, like we're agents and you're not. Uh, and you're night watch and you're sensitives and this is why you're bad and we're good S- stuff that's happening that's like under the surface you know they look down on the sensitives for being pacifists but i'm sure that there's like a back and forth about that that they see the agents as like violent people you know who can only they only see one answer to a problem and it's a sword you know um and i do love how saunders is just there throughout all of this being an asshole He's the worst. He calls uh, Lucy girly. I know. Oh, my God. I was like, this misogynist ass. And is like, quote unquote, teaching her. Right. You know, like, slap you in the face. Yeah. Dodgy bullshit. Um, Oh, I did want to bring up the... (laughs) When we were recording about the show, we could never figure out what that building was that they set up in. And and all throughout the book, they call it a chapel. Yeah, it's a chapel. So maybe that's that's what that was. And I, I don't think that they were actually in Kensal Green. But what they had there does kind of look like Kensal Green's chapel. It's like a big Greek style. And he, he describes it in the book, too. Uh you know, building with like the columns and everything, the columns and stuff. Yeah. Um, And then we get Saunders sort of describing that there was an incident with the Bickerstaff grave because they were trying to dig it before the agents got there during daylight so that the agents could get right to their job. Um, But as it got to like dusk, the grave started having ghosty stuff. Um, Mm. So he's like describing what was happening and A, I think it's funny that Saunders seems to almost not quite believe all these people that he's hired. In I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're there to watch out for ghosts and stuff. And he's just like, I don't know. You're being I... lazy. <laughs> but then, like, yeah. later on, we see him refusing to go anywhere near the grave. So he must believe them to some degree. <laughs> he does stay in the chapel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he does say one night, watch, bleh, one night watch kid said it had seven heads. And then he says, ridiculous, I sent her home. 
which is interesting because we know from the show and from having read this before that there are seven spirits in the mirror. Yeah, I noted this down too. So I think this is a clue that there is more than one haunting. Like, I don't think that you could pick this up the first time you read it necessarily. Yeah. But but there's more than one ghost and the nature of the second ghost is, you know, somehow polyphonic. There, there's more than one thing in the thing. So then, yes, Lockwood and Co. approach the Bickerstaff grave. Dun, dun, dun. So yeah, so they get to the gravestone and they describe how it's like not a full gravestone. They didn't have a stonemason engrave the name. It's just like somebody etched it in with like a random tool. And I can't help but wonder why they bothered at all. Why didn't they just leave it an unmarked grave? Like they put the warning on the iron coffin, which we get to later. So why mark the grave at all? Yeah, I thought this was like, I thought the same thing. And the only explanation I could come up with is like, if you at least make it look like a grave, then people would just leave it alone as opposed to like, you just bury something yeah. and then they're like, okay, well, John Smith's going to be buried in the lot, whatever. Yeah, and they no, go that's to dig fair, it up actually. and they're like, what is this? That's, that's actually a good point. I hadn't thought of that. All I could think of was that Stroud wanted to start the creepiness and it felt very like an out of world choice to me but now that you say that you're right somebody would have tried to put a body there yeah i mean the the classic it kind of doesn't make sense though because like the classic thing to do in so many stories if you're going to hide a dead body in a graveyard which is kind of a genius move is you usually put it with another body you right, just yeah. dig someone else up and put them in there too uh and, you know, like you want it to be a fresh one so that people aren't like, when did that get dug up? But uh, but that's not what they are doing here. I love your like a side of advice crime there or crime <laughs> advice. You want you know, it to weirdly, be a fresh one, everyone. My wife and I talk about these things a lot. I don't know. She's like, you would do it like this and this. She reads a lot of crime fiction. It, we all, it strangely comes up in conversations with my friends and me a lot because I have a friend yeah. who works in construction and he's like, we're pouring concrete all the time. Just call me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but this grave is not about hiding a body. And, and that's part of the point yeah. of everything that's happening here. They are getting rid of him, but it's not just that. Yeah, I actually feel a lot better about it since we had this conversation. So um, and then we have like a whole paragraph of when the the sort of ghost miasma affects Lucy and then she doesn't say anything about it like it's so creepy and weird and like really affecting her more than we've seen from any other ghost yet even back in Coomkeri Hall well maybe not quite that much because at the end there there was but you know what I'm saying yeah and then other than like she starts to tell Lockwood but then they just move on well, they even ask her, like, are you okay? Like, how are you doing? And she's like, I'm fine. Uh, and it's right after yeah. a long description about how not fine she is. So I feel like she could have warned them a little bit more there. Um, Joplin does show up in the middle of all this to watch them uncover the grave. It, it's also like a funny joke when Joplin pops out because it's like, it's getting, it's like you said, like it's really building up a little bit. And it's like, it says, from behind the grave, a figure broke free of the darkness and lurched forward into the lantern light. George and I cried out. Lockwood leaped to the side, ripping his rapier clear. He twisted as he jumped, landing in the center of the pit, facing the stone. Oh, sorry, Mr. Albert Joplin said. Did I startle anyone? 
so like you know it's a jump scare but it's like a comedian comedian style jump scare yeah and then he talks about how he got lost there is a little part here where lucy is like hearing this weird noise that sounds like flies Mm -hmm. which they did such a great job in the show with that whole thing but i thought in the show and i and i definitely think here and i think stroud is doing this more than even the show knows because i think stroud knows his stuff the sound of flies to me brings up the idea of like one of the names of satan is beelzebub right which translates to lord of the flies oh. it also kind of sounds like a buzzing like yeah beelzebub. like yeah I don't know. yeah exactly i think no i think you're right about that and so like the pestilence of insects and things like that is associated with evil. And so to bring this up to me, I was like, oh, this is like a satanic illusion and a way of associating Bickerstaff with Satan. And so like it's not this is not like and we said this before, you know, the ghost from the previous book where we had a victim and we're going to solve the victim's crime and achieve justice like this guy is bad. My thinking on the the buzzing was much simpler, uh, which indicative of how we think of these things. And just because when they uncover the body, he's still decomposing. Yeah. And I think the buzzing brings that to mind of a decomposing body. Yeah, it's the, probably like the last thing he heard right before he's dead is all the flies that are growing in him. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I think it's both. Like, I think it's that is the idea of it. Yeah, I guess in a way they're kind of related. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't have thought of everything that you just said. I would have just thought it brings to mind a decomposing body. And then that's what they find. Yeah, it's like when they are when they find Annabelle Ward or when she first goes in the house, she can hear a knocking. And that's probably what happened with Annabelle Ward when she was in the wall. Like, if she wasn't totally dead, she would have been knocking. Yes. Like, let me out, like let the, me out. the ghost would have wanted. Yeah. But then the chapter ends with them discovering that it's an iron coffin. And then Lucy says, can you hear it? The buzzing of the flies. And then George says, but they didn't have the problem then. What did they need to trap in there? And that's the yeah. end of the chapter. And so, of course, immediately you have to read the next chapter to find out what the fuck is in there. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, so in chapter seven, the team open the coffin and secure the source twice. And the chapter art is the iron coffin. Surprise, surprise. And then this is where it takes them till midnight to dig the whole thing out. Yeah, I love all the little details that we get in this chapter about the way that coffins deform over time when they're not made of wood. I assume if they're wood, they just disintegrate. I would presume also. But it's really interesting. Like, I I don't know if any of that's real, but I believe it. It seems like Stroud really knows what he's talking about. And so, like, the picture is a it shows how the the earth has deformed the uh, iron coffin over time. That's interesting to me, though, because I don't really think of iron as especially since it was only four feet down. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm incredibly wrong because obviously like four feet of earth and dirt and stuff is is quite heavy. But I think of iron as being stronger than that. I wouldn't think so either. But it does make sense if you think about, you know, like how much it rains in England and then it gets cold and it gets warm. And it, so the earth is kind of like moving around a little bit. Like we don't perceive that. But like, yes, you know, you're you're absolutely right. I just don't think of it that way. 
They also talk about it being specifically a coffin made of iron, which I think is really interesting. We never really got that in the show. It's kind of implied in the show that they just found an iron container. Yeah. Like it was a, a still. Or I think they yeah, said. Yeah, it's explicitly but, said. Like, we don't yeah. know if that's true, because then it turned out that everything that Bobby Vernon said was basically incorrect. But they never say that it is definitely a coffin. But here they, they do say that this is definitely an iron coffin that was created for the purpose of burying people in. And mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Just that, like, they, they had this prepared. Pre-problem. Pre-problem, yeah. I assume this is Bickerstaff's, like, ironically... It's the it's the kind of thing that he would have made for the shit that he was up to. And then they were like, aha, the perfect thing. Yeah. Um. So then they they talk about rotating who opens things and like only having one person sort of in the path of the scary door or whatever that they have to open, Um. which is fine. I guess that makes sense. But. They have this line where it says rotating this duty fairly is second only to the cookie rule in terms of importance. And I don't know why, but saying cookie rule sounds so juvenile. Like biscuit rule doesn't sound so stupid. (laughs) I agree. Why are we saying this? This sounds stupid. Yeah. But then I do wonder, like, if we were British, if biscuit rule would sound just as juvenile and silly. That's a good point. Cookie rule sounds stupid. It's not cool. Um. So then George tries to get Lucy to be the one to open it. Um. But Lockwood is like, no, no, it's your turn. Which is great and all, but I do wonder how all this would have gone if Lucy had been the one to glimpse the mirror. Mm. I think that would have been kind of interesting. I do feel like the mirror, I don't know, like it's talking to her, right? Yeah. Or yeah. or bigger stuff is or something is. There's also we talked all the about all this like deforming of the coffin and stuff, and the point of like talking about all that is that the coffin has been deformed such that it's open, and this is what is allowing the problem to happen with this bigger staff situation. So it's it says like one corner of the lid was so warped it had risen away from the side completely, revealing a narrow wedge of darkness inside. So. Like, that's how the ghost is able to get around all this iron. Right, yeah. But still, it must be really strong because it is surrounded by iron. Yeah. And then they see that there's an inscription on the lid of the coffin, but it's still sort of filled in with mud. And they don't want to waste time. Well, Lockwood doesn't want to waste time cleaning it out right now before they seal up the ghost. It's typical. He's not interested in being in the book that he's in ever. Oh, he was in book one. He was all in on that, Mr. Well, after it proved useful to the company. Right, exactly. That's what I mean. Like, he's never, he's like, that doesn't matter. Who cares? It's like, whenever he says that, it's like, oh, that matters. Yeah. We should care about that. Um, George opens it up and screams. That's a good, um, that's a good jump scare. I have to assume that it's raining and there was a flash of lightning just as he opened. Nice. Right. I don't think anything has said that it's raining, but it's London. They probably don't mention it every time it's raining. <laughs> um, so then we find that Bigger Staff is still juicy, and despite being down there for a hundred-ish years. He has like a hole in his head. He has a hole in his head, and he does not look like he's been nibbled on. Right. Which is not, which is, you know, counter to what they have been told. My only note on this page that I wasted a post-it on is gross. 
I don't know. Like all this stuff is really good in, in terms of mood. Like it's all tense. Yeah, it's all very tense. And then Lucy hears the look, look voice. Yeah. But they get it sealed up and then they uh, debrief. Oh, and it should be mentioned, of course, that the juicy dead body was holding something that had slipped out of a cover that it was on. Right. That's that's kind of important, actually. <laughs> it's kind of the whole book. Uh, and George saw something when he looked at it. And like Lucy gets a glimpse. So, you know, we, the reader, kind of get a glimpse. But mostly it was what was that voice? That's what she mm-hmm. is interested in. But George is like captured by this. And then Lockwood asked him, like, what did you see that made you scream? He's like, I know that he was nasty and everything, but we've seen worse. Uh, But George is like pretty freaked out. It says that like his eyes showed with numb distress, but they also held a yearning far off look. He kept gazing back towards the pit Mm -hmm. as if he thought he had left something there. And it worried me. Yeah. I also like that Lucy compares it to ghost lock. Yeah. Because then it, it feels like it's part of the world we've already learned and just a different version. Yep. If that makes sense. And she's right about that, yeah. basically. Yeah. And then he says it wasn't the body that freaked him out. <laughs> he says, I've seen worse things in our fridge. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've all been there, especially when we were younger. Yeah, um, that's pretty good. And then he says it was the mirror that he held. And he goes on to describe it. And I really love this line. And it, it was in the show, too. But he says, it was all black, basically. But there was something in the blackness. I like this thing that the book does here. And, and I, <clears throat> that I think this is my favorite thing about fantasy and why I like fantasy so much. Where the world building and the characters, emotions, and their arc, whatever it may be, intellectual, emotional, whatever. Mm-hmm intersect with each other and allow you to like kind of pull apart something that's going on on the inside emotionally or intellectually and make it like real in the world in a way that like is like solid and can be dealt with and so like all of this disquiet and like George has had so many problems in this book that he doesn't usually have he's being he's been very un-George like from the beginning right And now it's like solidified into this object. That thing is becomes like the locus of his arc in the book. In literature, that has to be realistic, whatever. It's like that stuff is almost always buried deep, deep under the surface. And it's it feels kind of tedious or like sometimes I can even miss it as a reader to be like, what are we even on about? But with fantasy, like they just bring it out in the fort like, oh, you were bitten by a zombie. This is about what does life mean, you know? Uh, that's uh, why I hate zombie fiction. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I I find it tedious. But it's like, but it does bring stuff to the forefront, if that makes sense. Yes, you know? I understand. It slaps you in the face with the metaphors. Yeah, and I like that. We all like being slapped in the face sometimes. <laughs> yeah, especially George. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, so back to my line about the blackness. Not yes. not to discount what you just said. I agree completely. I just think it's so creepy. I, like to think of like a complete blackness and then seeing something move in the blackness. Like, I don't know. it. That line just sticks with me. Yeah, I really like what Lucy says about it. 
Um, when I closed my eyes, I still saw that piece of glass glinting, flashing, darker than dark. Yeah. And those like that kind of doesn't go together, glinting and flashing and then darker than dark. Yeah. But like I totally understand what she means. And it's very disquieting. Um, and then we get them talking about how the coffin was iron and but, you know, from before the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lockwood says, you know, but silver, salt and iron have always been used against ghosts and evil spirits in general. So it can't be coincidence that we've got iron here. And I think that's interesting that they're kind of all getting on board that like something supernatural was happening with Bickerstaff again, uh, more than 100 years before the problem. Yeah. So I love that that like George knows that and. I also love that like Lockwood kind of doesn't care. He's like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Well, we it was Lockwood who said that though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think as a, like a way of dismissal, because George is like, how do they know about oh, Iron I and Bickerstaff's time? Yes. And, and Lockwood's like, they've always known, who cares? It doesn't matter. But then he is the one that says like, um, either of you notice anything odd about Bickerstaff himself? And, mm-hmm. and they say, yeah, he wasn't eaten. Right. And he had a hole in his head that looked like he was shot, probably. And it's important that we like kind of underline that in case that anybody missed it, because it is like the entree into the wider yeah. mystery of who is Bickerstaff, what is this mirror, what's the relationship between them and Bickerstaff's death and all that stuff. Um, but then Saunders and Joplin come over. They want to move the, or well, Joplin wants to move the coffin into the chapel because of thieves and relic men. Uh, so, and Lockwood is like not into it, but he says, we'll just keep the net in position and replace the chains around it when it's moved and don't let anyone go near it, which I guess after they move it, he means because to move it, people would have to go near it. And I just think that that's interesting because later on, he's like, never let people in like non agents. What are you doing? But yeah, they would have, I guess, because they would have been gone by that point and it wouldn't have been their problem, (laughs) but it's just funny. Yeah, I think it also shows that like it's irregular to want to move this thing at night. Yeah. Like it makes sense when you understand everything that's happening in the book, why Joplin wants this. But it also makes sense from like everything that we've gotten from Saunders, who's like complaining that we've lost half the night of work. Like this whole thing is holding up his operation. That's what he really cares about. And so they just want to get it out of the way so he can continue to excavate and make money. It also feels a lot like like when you have something really scary, you want to do everything in your power to dismiss it, to make yeah. it not scary. Yep. I mean, if we didn't know what we know about Joplin, I, I would buy it, that he just wanted to move it and forget about it. Yep. That makes sense. Lockwood goes away with Saunders to sign paperwork and get paid, which is what they both care about. Yep. Um, <laughs> and George... It wants to go back to the coffin and Joplin wants to go look at the coffin. They have different reasons for wanting this, but like it is all around a bad choice. And Lucy helplessly watches them try and kill themselves, basically. Yeah. So George and Joplin, without telling anyone, basically go to look at the inscription. And of course, they dislodge the silver net when they do that. And Lucy starts hearing the voice again. And this time a ghost appears. But this time it says something different. It says, look, look, 
Uh, but then it says, I'll give you your heart's desire, which is like super interesting. Like magic mirrors, your deepest desires. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the, like a long folklore tradition of that kind of stuff. And it always turns out really well. You know? Always. Yeah. It's never yeah. turned out poorly for anyone. Not ever. Um, I do wish we'd gone a bit more in depth into like, what is Lucy's deepest desire? You know, because yeah. she never really thinks about it. At least, not that I remember. Maybe we do later. But I kind of wish some of that had been dwelled upon. I think that part of it is what I said in the show, too, that, like, the deepest desire that all of us have is to die. <laughs> to, <laughs> like, that is, like, a th- real thing in psychology that, like, that's your deepest, most, like, the thing that your unconscious suppresses the most deeply is that you you don't want to be alive anymore and the more that you're like i don't want to die then that means you're repressing it more that's like the kind of like shitty thing about the unconscious is in terms of like you can't disprove its reality because the anytime you're like well i don't feel that way you'd be like well your unconscious is repressing it obviously um but yeah so that's how i read it is like what the mere whether that's true or not like i don't know that it could see your actual real desire but it might tell you that your desire is to be dead that's interesting yeah i like the ghost lock like you know convinces you that that's true but like even if that's what it what Stroud was going for i wish we dived further into that yeah i agree this is one of the reasons that i really liked the show because it kind of makes lucy and lockwood in particular deal with and confront their underlying desire for death Mm -hmm. whether their desire for death is not necessarily for themselves to be dead but to be closer to death like i Mm -hmm. I don't know if i'm explaining that correctly because no i get you yeah yeah, their trauma is all fucked up right so yeah um so the ghost of bickerstaff does appear near george and joplin which is interesting because the ghost did not appear before and in fact lockwood literally just said there'd been no tangible ghost at all right um, and then Lucy chucks a rapier at it. The description of the actual ghost, I was like, wow, I think this is just really evocative. It says the shape dropped down, the open mouth, the teeth descending in an arc. Mm-hmm. I threw the sword. It spun like a wheel against the sky. Like, wow. I did like that the show interpreted that as just make it real big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the ghost in the show works. I like it. No, I like it too. I like it too. I'm just teasing. And she hears the I give you your heart's desire one more time before the ghost disappears and the they get it all sealed up again. Yeah, it's very scary. She nails the ghost. Yeah, Mrs. George and Joplin gets the ghost gone. Lockwood like jumps in and gets the gets everything back, I guess. And that's the end of the chapter. It says the visitor was gone. Yeah. And then in chapter eight, back at Portland Row, the Iron Trio decide to argue with each other. Skull talks to Lucy again, and Saunders calls with a report that the mirror has been stolen. And the um, the chapter art is the hot chocolate that they drink, or cocoa as they call it, um, yeah. which, like, you can see marshmallows in it. So when I wrote down my note, but it's only like two marshmallows, which is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so when I wrote down my note, I was like, hot chocolate or tea? Because 
Yeah, because when I noticed this... Because one of them I, doesn't have marshmallows. So Well, I didn't notice the picture now that you point this out, but I did notice that when George goes to make it, he knows the way that Lockwood and Lucy like it. Mm-hmm. And he says that like Lockwood wants it extra frothy, which makes Lockwood very worried. And then uh, Lucy, he says, you take with two sugars. And I was like, do people add sugar to their hot chocolate? I have to assume he was making it from scratch, like like yeah. warming milk and putting cocoa in and then putting some sugar in, yeah. not putting in a, a mix or anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I make hot cocoa, but I don't, I guess I just don't do anything to it. But you put sugar in it, for right? Anybody. Well, yeah, but like while I'm, like you said, while you're making it, but not after. Like I've, if somebody wanted to be sweeter, I guess I would be like, you're a terrible person. Like, why would you do that? Um, That's true, actually. The whole point of making it yourself is that you can make it extra chocolatey and not as sweet as yeah the instant mixes. Well, Lucy has I don't a know sweet if those tooth, are I guess. Marshmallows is like, what I'm saying. What else could they be, though? But they would be two sugar cubes, like he said. Oh. I don't okay, know. None of this matters, but it's weird. No. It's weird. <laughs> Anyways, Lockwood was fairly restrained until they got home, is how the chapter starts, basically. And then he listened to George. <laughs> George has been like off for the whole book, like I was saying, and and even getting yelled at by Lockwood is part of what is off here because he they just don't usually butt heads like this this is lucy's job in the group is to get yelled at and to yell at george and to yell at george that's true um but i do think i think it's really clear here that lockwood is worried like he d- he has this new family now and he doesn't want to lose any of them and george came really close to dying here yeah this is bad bad father lockwood yeah. behavior here yeah and and George's like uh, defense is that you know then Deeprack will get a hold of the coffin and we'll never see what was on the description, and there isn't even like a mystery to solve. Like as far as they know right now, the mirror has not been stolen and is just going to be destroyed. So there yeah. isn't even a mystery to solve. So of course Lockwood is like, what does that matter? Yeah. What are you thinking? I mean, he's not wrong. But I think it's easy to think, but they need that for the story and blah, 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 blah. Or like not even think that logically or like at the forefront of your brain, but to sort of recognize it. No, you're right. But of yeah. course, from Lockwood's point of view, there's nothing to solve. Yeah, it's over. It is funny, though, that like Lockwood is the source of authority in the group, but mm-hmm. then he's like constantly undermined by the plot. <laughs> um, He does have this one or no, sorry, Lucy has this one line, which is just mean not out loud thankfully but she says in many ways lockwood was the complete opposite of george and not just in terms of personal hygiene <laughs> i understand that you know you've made george the punching bag that's to stroud <laughs> but you don't need to uh like that that one's bad i'm sorry sometimes i find them a little funny not that one i'm sorry <laughs> But, I mean, immediately after that, Lucy kind of sides with George and is like, because Lockwood is like, not us. We don't care about this stuff. Right, Lucy? And she's like, right, of course. Absolutely not. Um, But 
Right. And she starts asking George about it, and they get into a conversation. And we learn that the inscription said, As you value your soul, forsake and abjure this cursed box. It's like, again, it like reminds me of uh, the movie The Mummy. Like, wasn't there like an inscription on it? It's like, don't open it. <laughs> and then they open it and it's all juicy inside. The inscription was on the inside. He carved it with his fingernails. Oh, that's right. Wasn't right. it? I think. Yeah. yeah. Death is not the end or something like that. Death is only the beginning. Death is only the beginning. I've seen that movie a lot. <laughs> oh, me too. A million times. Yeah. I love that movie. Who put that on there? Now that I'm thinking about it, if it was like in his stuff, was Bickerstaff just like, well, I've got a real plan for this one. No, they uh, must have carved it when they put his body in there. Carved. It's hard to carve Iron Man. Like, how do you do that? Like, you usually have to cast it. Oh, that's a good point. I don't know. <laughs> we'll put a warning I make on sure it. Make sure everyone abjures what's in here, yeah. okay? Make sure and spell abjure correctly. It's important. I mean, that might have just been some, you know, Victorian. That might just have been how they spoke. Um, and then Lockwood uh, really points out that George has been off his game since even before the mirror. And that really hits George. Yeah, there's a really good quote here. It says, George sat very still. He opened his mouth as if to, about to argue, then mm-hmm. closed it again. His face lacked all expression. He took off his glasses and rubbed them on his jersey. And I was like, oh, poor George. And well, Lockwood immediately sees that he really affected him and says, I'm being unfair. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. But of course, George doesn't hear that. He's just like, no, no, I'll try to do better for you in the future. And I wish we had, well, he said, it says George said stiffly. But do we think mm-hmm. it's sarcastic or do we think what? I don't know. Sometimes I wish we were a little bit in the other boys, in the boys' heads so we could know, know what they were thinking. But it's probably better that we're not. So he goes off to make the cocoa. Logwood compliments Lucy on her aim with the sword or right oh, here. Yeah. And she's just like, mm-hmm, yep, yeah, I, yeah, mm-hmm. And then he's like, you didn't actually aim at all, did you? And she's like, no, no. <laughs> Just hooked it, chucked it, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good it's a good joke that like she just chucked it. I like in the show that she did not like she well, for one thing, she had a huge target and yeah. it's nowhere near George. But I feel like Lucy in the show is just all around more capable than he made her in the book, which is like it's kind of funny how she is in the book, but I like how badass she is in the show. So they're both good? Yeah. Yeah, they're both good. I I love this joke. Like, spoiler, it's my favorite joke. It's it's just different. Yeah. Book Lucy, I love that she's, like, she's so competent in some things that I feel like it's good to have her be a little incompetent in other things. Yeah. I don't know how you get, you'd be like, it's my specialty to throw a sword. You'd like, you throw a sword, it has become useless now. Swords are not guns. (laughs) that's part of the point to be fair if you throw a gun that (laughs) (laughs) it's true (laughs) you just throw a little bit of the gun yeah that's the idea um but anyways lockwood goes to check on what george is doing to his coco and lucy kind of collapses on the couch and has a conversation with the only other person in the room (laughs) uh but i love that he's just like feeling rough she's like yeah a little and it's like whoa 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 yeah who is this but of course he says, because you sure as hell look it. 
Oh, I love skulls so much. <laughs> this is, yeah. I used to get this a lot when I was a kid. Growing up, thought this was hilarious. They'd be like, does your face hurt? And I'd be like, no. And I'd be like, well, it's killing me. Uh, it's that kind of thing. I love, yeah. I love that he's so juvenile. But it is, it's skull. Everything that he says, I didn't realize this until, because I always listen to the audiobooks. Mm-hmm. But everything that he says is italicized. Yeah. Which, like, how do you take that? Like, I hear it as like a slightly echoey, like, this isn't actually heard in a physical sense. It's like, yes, exactly. Internally heard. That's yeah. how I, and also because, like, he isn't talking, he doesn't have a throat and whatever yeah. else you need to make noise. So it is all psychic. Um, But then we revisit what he told her before about death is coming and deaths in life and life's in deaths and how she kind of ignored that. Then he's, and then he says, problem is you're stupid, Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) That is a direct skull quote. Um, You're blind to the evidence around you. What fat George deceitful Lockwood. What a team. And I said this last time we talked That Skull says all of the unspeakable things that are inside of Lucy. Mm -hmm. This actually snaps her out of the whole thing. To call Lockwood deceitful is like too far for her. She can't accept it. And uh, she rebels against Skull. But I think him saying things like you're stupid and things like that. Those I think that all of that is inside of Lucy. I, I also like earlier he says a thing to her. She's like, why are you talking to me? What are you? And he's like, what am I? And and he says, this is what I am. And he shows her the skull inside, like the plasm moves back and shows a skull. Right. He says, look on me well. This fate awaits you too, which is uh, like a famous thing uh, that would be written on lots of stuff, usually is written in Latin, called a memento mori. Right. Where people would have all these things to like, you would look at it and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to die. Like, usually you would have a skull or some kind of like maybe a skeleton painting or something like that. And it's to remind you that like life is short. It um it feels a little profound for Skull. Yeah. Well, I think that he's making a joke there. Like he knows about Memento Mori's. Right. Yeah. And that he, he's like, I'm a Memento Mori. Uh which is the the whole reason I brought it up because I was like, oh, that's funny. But then he comes back to that with the whole like deaths in life and life's in death that he told her, like you said. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like that's closely tied to like the, like I said earlier, with the thing with the mirror offering your deepest desire. Like the death wish is at the center of life and it's the terminating thing about life. Like it's very mixed up psychologically. The the entire idea of the death drive and the death wish is the thing that makes you live more. Like the more that you're in touch with that, then like that's when you live your full life. Hmm. Cause death is literally in life. The ghosts are literally floating around or whatever. It's literally true. That's true. And it's like symbolically there and stuff too. So like, I feel like the memento mori and, and that, thing or like related to say like you know remember that you're gonna die like helps you to live better it's like the thing from his dark materials with the harpies when you think about what am i going to tell the harpies maybe you'd you know don't sit around and take naps all day and stuff 
<laughs> you go out and live a little. God, you know, I worry a lot about what I would tell the harpies because I don't got much. <laughs> <laughs> I took good naps. I mean, I did take, I have some good naps. Anyways. <laughs> um, so eventually, uh, Lucy calls for Lockwood and George and says that the jar, the ghost in the jar is talking. But of course, <laughs> Skull just stops. Um, like, and not even, like, this, he, he, he disappears. It's just a skull in the jar. No ghost. Yeah. And then I she's like, it. well, it was talking, really talking to me. Um, and Lockwood says, yeah, yeah, we believe you. And I think he's being truthful there. Yeah, I like that that's not a thing that we have to go through. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I believe. And then he's like, a real back and forth conversation, a real type three. And she's like, definitely. And George is like, well, what was it like? And she says, irritating. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> this is my favorite thing. This is probably my joke. <laughs> is is that it's not profound and deep. Yeah. It's like, I think this is what it would really be like. Because if you could, well, I don't know, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't think you can communicate with the dead. But if you could, it would be annoying because you know what talking to another person is like? It's irritating. <laughs> <laughs> I also... Like we find out in later books that the person that Skull was died pretty young, so it's not like it's not like talking to an adult, right? It it is kind of like he, he stopped maturing when he died. Yeah, they're all kids. Yeah, but because he's kind of like a guide, it's tempting to think of Skull as an adult. Yeah, but he he no, he also died as a teenager. So, um, so then we get this line about Marissa Fitz, which I find interesting. Because it says, only Marissa Fitz said that communicating with type 3 ghosts was perilous, that they twisted your words and played with your emotions. She said, if you weren't careful, you felt yourself falling slowly under their power until your actions were not your own. And I I can't really go in depth about why I like that line, because Alan hasn't read the last two books. Um, but I would love to know when she said that, when in her life, what the timeline was there. And... Whether or not she ever took that to heart. I like that right after that whole thing, that like a really cool lore dump, immediately Lucy says, no, I'd still say irritating sums it up. Yeah. Eventually George is like, well, did it say anything about the other side? Blah, 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 blah. And because it, it's very much like George wants to know what happens when you die. And he has this like existential moment and then is immediately reminded of his existence by saying, mm -hmm. it said I was fat. <laughs> and I love that so much because he's trying to, I, I just love having an existential crisis and then being reminded that you exist as you are. In a body. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's good writing. Like it's funny and it's good. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I like that Lockwood is basically like this thing is like the one ring, right? It's like momentous and sinister and and <laughs> Lucy's like, it thinks you're fat and it thinks you're deceptive. That's what it thinks. Yeah. Like it's not it's not trying to tempt me into like great evil. It's just annoying. But then, like, they say all these things about how it messes with your head and all those things. And then Lockwood is like, what did it say about me? And Lucy's very clearly, like, not flat out, but is very clearly saying, I would rather not say. 
But then he convinces her to say, and then he gets mad at her about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. dude, she didn't want to tell you. Like, because, of, like, <sighs> I hate Lockwood here. I want to slap him. Like, A, he's mad at Lucy, even though she didn't say the things. And he said that he believes her about the ghost. And he also just said that it gets in your head and messes with you. And then immediately lets it get in his head and mess with him. So do you think that there is a real supernatural effect that it's having? Or... No, no, I think they're just insecure kids, all four yeah, of them. Yeah, that's how I read it, too. Yeah. <laughs> Ghost and uh, skull included. Yeah, I think he knows the exact thing that will upset all of them. Yeah, because like he's a- been there so long, and he's watched them day in and day out and listened to all their conversations and knows what makes them tick. Exactly, yeah. It's psychological, it's not supernatural. Yeah. Yeah, his disposition to make them upset might be a supernatural thing that, like, He's whatever like teenage asshole he was in life might be turned up a million times or at least he's a type three. I I don't know if it's like supernaturally turned out or like once you're dead, why care? Yeah. In the show, they make him a little bit more lonely. It feels like he's like, oh, I haven't talked to anybody in so long and just talk to me. But in here, it doesn't seem that way. He's just like, oh, this will get him. If I say this right now, she's really vulnerable right now. I could really fuck with her. I I like that, though, in the book, because I do think Skull feels that way in the books, but it's he would never say it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, especially in the later books, you do get that from him, but not in like he never says those words. There are a lot of stories that are like that, where it's like, you know, the genie or like a demon or an angel coming into a binding circle or something like that. And then like the summoner or whoever the master of the spirit is is like, tell me secrets, blah, blah, blah. And then it's just by communicating with that supernatural entity, it undoes the mortal person. I think that's like a a lore thing that Stroud is really bringing into the story by calling him the ghost in the jar. But I don't think that's what's happening here specifically. I feel like there's also, like along the same lines of what you were saying, there's a lot of stories where you find out that the evil person is evil because they've had this communication with a being. Right. And maybe they wouldn't have been evil if that had never happened. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be what Marissa Fitz said, right? Like, don't talk to these. Yeah, things. exactly. Exactly. I didn't want to bring more spoilers in. So I didn't say that. No, no, no. I get that. And it's like, I, I think that's germane to the book, though, too, because like, how what the mirror is and all that stuff so like all of this is important to have in the back of your mind even if that's not exactly what's happening with skull like the idea of it is important to have Mm -hmm. and george kind of points that out he says looks like marissa fitz was right type three ghosts do miss with your head and play with your emotions look at the two of you now arguing over nothing and then after that they get a phone call at 4 30 in the morning because the mirror has been stolen Dun, dun, dun. I don't know about you. Well, maybe it's different without cell phones, but if I got a phone call at 4.30 in the morning, I would not answer. <laughs> well, that's their working hours, so... I guess that's fair. You think they have caller ID? No, I don't. I I feel like anything even resembling better communication, like caller ID and that sort of thing, takes the mystery out of the mystery. Maybe not like 100%, but some of it. Oh, yeah, I don't think they have it. They don't have that stuff. 
Um, all right. Did you have anything else to say? No, I think we both talked about our favorite jokes this time already. Yeah. Mine, as I said, was the, um, you didn't actually aim it at all, did you? No. You just chucked it. In fact, it was pure blind luck. Yup. <laughs> I just, I love it because I can hear their voices so clearly. Yeah, and mine is just that it's irritating. <laughs> There's all of this. There's good buildup about like, it's supernaturally evil and important. And she's like, nah, he's annoying. I mean, skull in a nutshell. Yeah. Him good. being this like mythical type three ghost that nobody other than one person who's dead has ever seen before. Uh, and he's just like, you all suck. <laughs> you're fat. Yeah. It's like, that's good. You're stupid. You're secretive and you're fat. Yeah. <laughs> That's. I think that's really what it would be like to talk to a dead person. It would just be like talking to a person. Yeah, that's what it would be like. I don't know. Do you have a punk rock? Thing? I didn't. I didn't come up with one this time. Yeah, chucking the sword is punk rock, but it's not when it's accidentally. It's not. I, I guess the very act of throwing a sword, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe the act of burying a coffin illegally in a posh cemetery is itself the most punk rock thing that happens. But it was far in the past and not done by our characters. Yeah. <sighs> Very unpunk rock chapters, which yep. is unfortunate. But next week, we're on to part three. Part three, The Missing Mirror, which has six chapters. So we'll probably break that into three and three again. But I haven't read ahead, so I don't know. Because we are not very prepared. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you have anything to say about anything that we've discussed today, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at Lockwood Podcast, or you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. You can send your emails to contact at hologroundmedia.com or visit the contact page, hologroundmedia.com slash contact. And remember to be irritating after you die. Mm-hmm.